Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Creative Control with Vish Khanna is brought to you by the in-kind support of Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. Financial support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. So please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation today. This episode deals with matters that some listeners may find troubling. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, please talk with someone you trust. You can access information about 24-hour crisis centers across Canada at suicideprevention.ca. And in the United States, you can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or suicidepreventionlifeline.org to chat with someone online. We need you here. Please take care of yourself. No problem. It's all right. Your video's still up. I don't know. Maybe it'll be fine. Okay. Well, I'll sit over here. Okay. Thank you for doing this. Of course. And uh, so I'm going to reset for the audio just to say hello for the show, and then I'll obviously turn this into a print piece as well. Okay. And we'll go from there. All right. Here we go. Hi, David. How's it going? Hi, Vish. I'm doing well. It's nice to finally speak with you again. It's been a long time. Yeah, good to see Good to hear from you. <laughs> and see you a little bit using the internet. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Hello, everyone. This is an episode I don't really want to make, I suppose. I mean, I want to pay tribute to David Berman today. And so this episode of my podcast is a bit unusual. If you listen to the show regularly, you know I'm not much of a monologue person. I like to talk to guests and people about their stuff. But um, David passed away. Uh, It's uh, As I'm talking to you, it's... Monday, August 12th. So on the 7th, I got back from a two and a half week vacation and with my family and then heard that David was gone. And at the risk of some measure of self-aggrandizement, I want to... I mean, I, I'm doing this to mourn. I'm doing this so that if you're mourning David maybe we can commiserate in some ways 
I guess that's what mourning is, processing the loss of someone, however you do it. You, you, you remember them, and you remember specific things you experienced together. You remember specific attributes they had. That's that's what I'm. That's what I thought I would do. That's what I thought I would do with this show. That David has left a mark on. David's name has come up so many times over the course of conversations I've had with people who knew him, who worked with him, who were fans of his. I am a fan of his, and so that's this is not prepared. I don't know where this is going to go, but I I wanted to mourn. I wanted to mourn David and remember David. And uh, I just want to talk about David and me a little bit in terms of um, my interactions with him as a as a fan, as a teenager when I was, you know, 15, 16. Actually, you know what? Hang on. I have had a lot of trouble listening to David's music since I um, heard he passed away. But I'm. this is such a weird episode. I'm going to play some music by David in the background because I think it might be reassuring. Hang on a second. I'm just going to put a record on. Okay. I don't know. This might be distracting, frankly. Uh, yeah, so I first encountered David's music when I was in high school. I was a big pavement fan. And um, the thing about being a serious pavement fan, or maybe even a serious music fan, is that you obsess over everything. You obsess over every B-side, every single, every compilation appearance, every interview, whatever it was. And so that whatever that was led me to Silver Jews, which was David's band with Stephen Malcolmus and Bob Mistanovich and occasionally Steve West. Those guys were in Pavement, and David would work with them. And I think it was... I, this is before the internet. This is like the early to mid-'90s, I guess. And so you'd hear about things through interviews, through magazines, through articles, through going to shows... And I used to go to Orange Monkey Records in Waterloo and Encore Records in Kitchener. I, I grew up in Cambridge, Ontario. And Encore in particular did a thing, which I'm sure lots of record stores do, where the section on pavement would feature any related release. So if you were looking through the pavement, you'd find the Hey Drag City compilation or or eventually the Brain Candy compilation. you just find related things. So I don't know this for sure. But if I were to speculate, I was thumbing through the pavement section at Encore Records as a teenager, and there was something called Silver Jews. And and it was probably Starlight Walker, or I don't think it was the Arizona record, but I think it was Starlight Walker, which was the first Silver Jews album. And at the back of it is a photo of David Berman flanked by Stephen Malcolmus and Bob Nastanovich. And so I brought it home, and Stephen and David are singing together on the first song, but then David starts singing songs on his own, and and then I realized that this was David's work. And his voice spoke to me, and his wit spoke to me. His his attitude 
spoke to me. Everything about it I loved. To the point where I was into kind of harder music in terms of stuff I was trying to play as a kid. Like, you know, post-punk, post-hardcore music. That's what I tried to play. But my friends Steve Lampke and Dave Emmerich had a kind of a thing we would do sometimes where we just record stuff on a like a ghetto blaster and we call ourselves pop machine and we would kind of do stream of consciousness consciousness things and i would just rip off david um <laughs> something about his approach to songwriting really spoke to me and it always has it just always has since i was what was that 15 16 um as i talked to you i'm 41 and um Something curious happened to me. I went to university and I started to slowly write about music, you know, review albums for the university newspaper and and try to contribute to the radio station, CFRU, in some ways here and there. And uh, when I finally graduated university for good, I did did, uh, an undergrad and then I did a master's degree. And then when I finished that in the early 2000s, I, I started to write more professionally or for more established magazines and so at some point david put out a record called tangle with numbers i mean his previous albums like i just would get every one and i remember distinctly the natural bridge which is playing behind me right now and american water i mean those two hit me and very particular ways where I wasn't sure about myself and I was heartbroken for sure here and there and they just I just put them on and they really helped me like I I just had this relationship with this music and he's this enigmatic enigmatic guy like he never toured he never he just put out records there was occasionally interviews and things but rarely he was just his own thing and I never thought I'd see him. I'd see everyone, and I never thought I'd see him. But then he put out this album, Tangle with Numbers, and uh, I, at this point, had just sort of started freelancing for a magazine, and the opportunity came to speak with David. Not exactly. I should rephrase that. I, um, What it was, really, was I could interview him uh, if I wanted to, I could, I could actually talk to him, uh, over email. It was an email interview. He was only doing email interviews, I guess is what I'm getting at here. Sorry. I'm fumbling. I, this is all, I haven't prepared anything here. So forgive me. I'm trying to pull up something here. Oh yeah. So he was doing email interviews for this album, Tanglewood Numbers, which I, which I loved. And, um, uh, so I got to email him some questions through his publicist at the time. And then I wrote um, I wrote this I wrote this article uh, I don't stand by what I wrote necessarily but I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna read you this very short article I got to write about Silver Jews and David for Exclaim Magazine and my date here in terms of when I submitted it says October 2005 and the headline I chose was Silver Jews Choose Life and the reason for that title is because. David had just come out of a very dark and depressing period in his life, and he'd committed self-harm. He intended to end his life. And this was part of the promotion of this album on some level. So it had to be 
it had to be addressed on some level as sensitively as I could, and I so I did my best to ask him about it. Uh, in retrospect, I could have been more sensitive about asking someone about such a thing. Um, but he fielded it. He fielded the the question. Uh, his response to that period in his life was, the list is lengthy. I was living incompetently. Now I've got it made in the shade. I clip my fingernails. I write what I like to call positive rock. For instance, my newest MP3, Love is Like a Bowl of Chex Mix. Indeed, Berman has retained his sense of humor on the latest Silver Jews album, Tanglewood Numbers, his most jubilant record in years. Songs like Punks in the Beer Light and How Can I Love You If You Won't Lie Down are raucous and reckless, making for a spirited punk rock record. It's still strange to me that it came out sounding so fierce, Berman agrees. It's almost like I'm going backwards. More bands start out brash live bands and slowly cut out touring as their albums mellow out. I'm like an old man who's growing into a baby. Floating among guests like Steve Malcolmus and Will Oldham is some of Berman's most religious imagery. Well, I think it's interesting that as I've gotten older, I've grown into the band name, he says. In the very beginning, I thought of it as almost conceptual art, and on the first albums, I wrote about God, mostly because almost no other secular artists do, and I naturally gravitated towards the unemployed signage. Now that I'm older and subspace is colder, I really turned into a Jew. So that's the piece I wrote about David. He's quoting one of his old song, song lyrics there, I realize now. So this is like, I, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people. And by this point in 2005, I started to talk to a lot of people. But to get to email questions to David Berman and have him feel them was at the time pretty remarkable thing for me I mean it's still when I look back on this I haven't looked at this stuff in years it took me a while to find some of the things I'm going to be sharing with you today yeah and then we um, we got this news that David was going to tour Uh, he put out this record Tanglewood Numbers and then he decided he was going to do some touring behind it just to I don't know he'd always resisted it I don't think he really saw the appeal of it he thought of himself as a as a writer um and so uh, the first leg of this tour happened um i'm just looking it up did i review it i did (laughs) sorry i'm just googling stuff (laughs) it says here according to the internet on March 25th, 2006, I went to the Blind Pig in Ann Arbor, Michigan to see Silver Jews and Spiritual Family Reunion. I haven't read this. I, I'm going to read this to you. I've not read this before. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I mean, I haven't read it since I wrote it. And I just came upon it. Let me read you the review of what was, uh, as I recall, the final night of touring. Um, okay, here's what I wrote. You guys came on the right night, David Berman mused mid-afternoon, several hours before his electrifying gig at the Blind Pig. It's the last show of the tour, and number 11 is going to be the best one. Let me interject here. This is true. My friend, Stephen O'Sullivan, if if you can see a photo of me with David Berman, however you're accessing what you're hearing right now, the guy on the far uh, right is my friend Stephen O'Sullivan, and I don't know if it was his idea or mine, but we... He loved David. He loved Silver Jews. And he said, let's go to Ann Arbor. There's no Canadian date. Let's go to Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
together. So me, my now wife, Michelle, and, and Stephen and his buddy, whose name I can't recall, drove down to Ann Arbor to see David Berman and Silver Jews. And we got there in such a timely manner that the first people in Ann Arbor, Michigan that we spoke to were Bob Nastanovich and David Berman. And Stephen said, you should bring your copy of David's poetry book, Actual Air, with you. And I said, yeah, I'm not really an autograph person. I don't have autographs. I don't collect them. I don't see the point of it. But I will bring my copy of David's book. I love Actual Air. It's a fantastic poetry collection. Sure. So I meet David. I've I've done an email interview with him. We've never interacted. I meet David, and um, it's a brief interaction. I tell him we exchanged this email interview thing, and he remembers it and says, oh, I love Canadians are always really kind to me, and I love talking to them. Thank you. He thanked me, and that was our interaction, and then I went to the show. Sorry, I'll go back to the review. I'll start again. You guys came on the right night. David Berman mused mid-afternoon, several hours before his electrifying gig at the Blind Pig. It's the last show of the tour, and number 11 is going to be the best one. I don't remember really quoting artists in live concert reviews, but clearly this, this meant something to me. Over the past 13 years, Berman's reputation as a recluse who never tours, coupled with dispatches of erratic performances at Nashville bars, has rendered him more myth than man. Naturally, an announcement about a first tour is met with shock, excitement, and anxiety from longtime fans. In the end, Berman and a killer Silver Jews lineup put on an unbelievably amazing show. Spiritual family reunion leader Patty LeMay drove straight from Nashville to open up and was joined by SFR bassist and Jews guitarist William Tyler and Pavement's Bob Nastanovich, who never played with LeMay before. While LeMay's songs were compelling, particularly Shane, Nastanovich drumming proved distracting <laughs> oh man <laughs> bob bob and i are buddies i'm sorry bob i don't know why <laughs> i a little dig at bob there at the end i don't i was expecting that anyway soon enough berman and the dapper silver jews ambled on stage to a huge roar from the audience with wife cassie aglow on bass berman happily chatted to the crowd before consulting his trusty music stand for the lyrics to pet politics from there, the band nailed songs from almost every Silver Jews record, with obvious standouts including Random Rules, Trains Across the Sea, Slow Education, and Intense Takes on Smith & Jones Forever and Dallas. Tanglewood numbers, like Punks in the Beer Light and Sometimes a Pony Gets Depressed, were downright ferocious, and Nastanovich made a triumphant return to scream along with There's a Place. Peering ambiably through his prescription designer shades, at the end of, the, of a glorious night, Berman thanked the sweaty faithful for their patience, promising they'd see the Silver Jews play live again soon enough. All right. Well, other than digging at, my, at Bob, I, I stand by that. Published May, 20, May 1st, 2006. Silver Jews, March 25th, 2006. So go to that show at some point. I don't know the chronology on this, but they will... Oh, no, I do know the chronology on this. Let me stop myself. So, they do this, and they do this tour, and I think they did another leg of it. And then, uh, shortly thereafter, I think within a couple of years, there's a new Silver Jews album called Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea that comes out. And I, again, am afforded the opportunity, potentially, to speak with David... And I will tell you more about that conversation um, 
soon. I, I will. Uh, it's it's relevant to this to this episode of the show. Uh, I will say that after playing some shows behind that album, Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea, one of which was in Toronto, and I, I got to see it. Um, David announced in 2009 that he was shutting the Silver Jews down. He wasn't doing it anymore. And he wrote a blog post saying that some of that had to do with his father, his uh, father, Richard Berman, who was a lobbyist, a conservative lobbyist, and and really one of the architects for how the conservative movement um, smears people and engages in character assassination to their conservative ends. And then David kind of disappeared. Um, He had a blog. He had a a blog that he would tend to, and he would appear here and there. There would be these kind of, you know, poetry readings and, and other kinds of musical appearances where in Nashville where he lived. But from 2009 on, he was really mythical if he wasn't already beforehand. And every once in a while I would um, talk about David with someone who I knew either knew him or admired him. And um, at some point I started doing, well, no, I started working for CBC, actually, CBC Radio. And um, in 2012, I ran into Stephen Malcolmus at the Sled Island Festival in Calgary, and not it was just after um, a compilation by Silver Jews called Early Times was issued by Drag City and it captured a seven inch and a and, e, and an EP and um, and I asked Stephen about that while we were in Calgary. It's, it's pretty minor conversation. Actually, I have a clip of it. Here's here's Stephen just talking a little bit about David. I uh, was thinking about you recently because a couple of weeks ago this Silver Jews thing came out. Mm-hmm. Early times. Yeah. And uh, for those who don't know, this is a kind of a compilation of some obscure and rare early, early things I recorded when I was a young guy. And yeah. Yeah. Did you have any input into the uh, creation of this particular release? Not into the reissue. No. I was involved at the start, um, of course, because I was in the band. But I'm happy that it came out. I mean, it's really, really lo-fi. Yeah. You know, it's just three guys in a basement, and we have some good lyrics, and it's recorded just on a boombox. But, you know, we had some good connections, because I was in Pavement, and, like, David was a charismatic guy. So we got to put ours out on Drag City. Most people wouldn't. Right. And uh, there's a song on there called Canada. That's right. And you talk a lot about, I think it's you, it's, it's your voice, That's reciting true. all these things about Canada. Yeah, well, you know, we thought it could be a, the idea was to make a, kind of a theme, like a Olympic song or something for Canada. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. Thank well, you very yeah, much. No problem. So just a little bit of talk about David and, and Canada there. And then I started a podcast, this one. Creative Control in 2013, and I proceeded to talk to people I admire, and among them were uh, Will Oldham. Will Oldham was a friend of David's and someone who I'd come to befriend um, through this work that I do. Uh, it's an interesting phenomenon that I've been grappling with lately, um, that 
for whatever reason, I, I mean, you've heard the show. I develop these rapports with people, and I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but it seems to happen more frequently than it doesn't. Um, something about the work and, and the type of people maybe that I talk to as well, like their willingness to engage with fans and, and to take me and my questions seriously. I don't know what it is, but comes up a lot. Hang on, I got to flip the record. Okay, I'm back. So, uh, yeah, Will and I have developed a rapport and a friendship and uh, of some kind, uh, m- mutual admiration, let's call it. And uh, on episode 134 of this show, October 2nd, 2014, Will's back on the show, and we talk about lots of different things. It's a long one. We talked about so many things, it's like a two-hour episode, which I don't remember. I just looked it up. Anyway, at one point I asked him about David, and this is where that line of questioning went. Now, I want to ask you about something that people bring this up to me all the time um, because they know I'm a fan of his work and that I've spoken to him a couple of times. Uh, You mentioned his father a little while ago. When's the last time you were in touch with David Berman? I'm just curious. We're all wondering about David Berman, and I don't know. I know you're friendly with him, Uh, right? Yeah. Uh, we're in touch on a fairly regular basis, and and I and I I'm sure that I brought his father up specifically because there's somebody writing, maybe for Mother Jones, an article about David and his relationship with his dad, which has been a big issue. Yeah. Over the last six or seven years, you know, I I, I so there's this guy who's writing a, an article for I think it's for Mother Jones, and and I did uh, I talked to him with David's permission because there's not you know I. I you know, it's just if if someone had called me and said, "Do you want? Would you mind if I participated in an interview about the relationship between you and your parents?" I would say, "Absolutely not." But I so I called David and he <laughs> said, "He said, please do, go for it." So okay, okay, you you know, you can't never speak to me again because of things you read in this thing. Yeah, um, because you told me to to do this. And is but is David is, is David okay? Like what's what's he up to? Like I I am I I want to phone him. I want to call him and talk to him. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I should just do that because I just want to know what he's again. Pe- people ask me all the time. Should I just phone him? I mean, it, it depends on how you want to talk to him. He, you know, he's a fairly he, he attends to his email. Um, but you could also, if you want to talk to him on a personal level, I'm not sure how to advise you, especially in this context. But <laughs> but if you want to talk to him on a professional level, I would say you could, you know, put three sentences together and send it to Catherine at Drag City. Yeah. Um, so I think at this very moment, I think David might be at in Chicago, staying at the Drag City building. Okay. He's done that over the past few months. He's gone and had extended stays up there, and I think he's in the midst of one right now. Is but and I think he's 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 doing he's doing pretty good. You know, I think the the his concerns over the power that his dad has over society at large and him specifically have been pretty, you know, have overshadowed a lot of things uh, over the past six or seven years in, in David's world. And uh, unfortunately 
uh, he lost his mom earlier this year, who he had a strong and loving relationship with. One potentially positive thing that's happened as a result of that is I think it's maybe jarred him a little and helped uh, reawaken him to a world at large that includes his friends and includes his work in a, in a way that doesn't uh, involve his dad. And hopefully that will continue. I mean, I think people have been seeing more of him and hearing more from him. And I think there's the potential that, that as, as his, you know, fans and audience members that, that we will as well in the future more than we have in, in recent years. Okay. And p- partly as a result probably of, of, this trauma occurring this year, but you know that's these are things that happen in our lives. All right, well, I appreciate you even feeling this because it's not really nothing to do with you. But I just uh, you know him and I miss him. Well, the you know w- one thing that's uh, you know that I didn't a question that you sort of alluded to if you didn't directly ask earlier. You know, you were asking about Drag City and yeah, and how I became you know how I came from here to being associated with Drag City and it comes back to David because there was, you know, I really, I, I, I still marvel. I, and I know I have this tendency, you know, I know I have a, a narrow vision of the world and I try constantly to open it up as wide as possible without endangering myself. Uh, but I, but I, I marvel at like this period of when I was sort of gave up the pursuit of acting as a career and, started working on music and I know I was, I was listening to records all the time and I was reading all the time, but this was say 90, 91, you know, at that time I didn't know certain things, but, you know, I didn't know what pay, you know, who pavement was, for example, even right. as much as I was listening to records and, and I didn't know. Uh, and, you know, I, I started making some recordings with Todd Brashear and, you know, and I sent, two songs as a demo to Interscope Records at the time to see if they wanted to do a seven inch because I didn't know what Interscope Records was or anything <laughs> like that, you know? And uh, I sent it like to three labels and Interscope was one. And, and only like years later did I think like, what the, who the fuck was I? You know, like, <laughs> what, like what did I think they were? But that one of the labels was Drag City. And the only reason I sent it to Drag City was because I'd met this woman named Tanya Small who'd said like, oh, I want to give you, a, you know, my band's seven inch. And she plays, she beats on some boxes or something like that on the Silver Juice single, the first one, the not yeah. the single, but the seventh, it's the Diamond Up of the Reef EP. Yeah. And, and I listened to it and I loved it and, and I loved everything about it. You know, I loved everything about it. Like I loved the way that it looked, how many songs were on it, how they sounded, how, you know, the performances on it. I just thought this was great. And I loved the Drag City logo. So when we had these recordings, you know, I sent the demos to... Homestead, I guess to home. I think Gerard was still Gerard Cosloy was still at Homestead. Mm-hmm. I sent it to him and I sent it to Interscope because this uh, guy named Robert Nettlecoff was friends with a woman who worked there, and you know he just gave me her address. And then I sent it to Drag City because I had the Silver Juice seven inch. I didn't really know anything else about Drag City except for the existence of this oh. seven inch record. Well, so that's, and I thought, well, this is a cool label, and obviously they they're wanting to put things out that you know are very you know are are very pleasing and you know and complicated and and that they seem to have a, you know a nice attention to detail because as I said I even like the 
the the logo and and yeah so, wow. so it, and then David you know and I first met David face to face I think during the recording of the first Palace Brothers record he came through Louisville with Bob Nastanovich and hmm. they came by the house where we were recording and you know just hung out for an hour or so but that was so it's all tied in. Yeah, sense that's, to talk to David. I, I appreciate you calling back to that. You're right. I didn't get a chance to ask the question directly, and I appreciate it because I've never heard that story before. And it's uh, that's kind of that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, if you're talking to him, convey to him that I I'd like to talk to him, and I miss him. And I and I I will send a note to people at Drag City because I I think I should finally do. I, I for some reason it just comes up every few months, and people think of yeah. me. They they ask me. Because as I say, I've spoken to him a couple times, and they just like go go find David Berman. <laughs> so yeah, you, you, it would be he is he you know he, he similarly to you know he he is somebody with whom one can have a conversation that one cannot have with anybody else on the planet. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it's there are all there are lang there's language used and directions taken in conversation with David that do not happen with, with, uh, with anybody else. And, the, and, and 94% of the time it's for the better. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then just chatter about David is occurring on the, on the podcast. We're just talking about David because we love him. I love him and I want to bring him up to people and at some point, there is this sort of rumor happening that uh, that something's going on with David, that maybe he's working on something. And I reach out to Bob Nastanovich of Pavement and Silver Jews, friend of David's, to ask him about David. And we have this, like, again, it ends up being a big episode because Bob talks a lot about Malcolmus, Stephen Malcolmus, and about how they've tried to make Pavement come back and, and how whether or not that's working out. But in the process, Bob told a pretty amazing story about an experience he Stephen and David had together in New York and just for fun I'm going to share a bit of that with you right now since I was 18 you know and you know I was friends with David and Stephen because those guys are not the easiest guys to um, (laughs) bring together they weren't really too close in college then they're sort of their closest period was sort of you know between like 90 and 93 when we all lived in new york and that they all they they worked together Mm -hmm. so they spent a lot of time together and like i think what sort of really brought them together was that the new york scene back then was really pretty harsh from the standpoint of snobbery it was strong you know like there's a there's like a core of like it was kind of based on adoration of grunge mm-hmm. and, um, and there was like, and there, and, and there was a, you know, there, it was also kind of built around the record store, pure platters and, and, and Hoboken. And then a few clubs, Maxwell's being one and the pyramid and, um, CB's had gone pretty indie grunge at that point. And there's a few more, but it was, a, it was a good time to be in New York city in terms of, really cool things coming through. I mean, obviously bands always go and play New York city, you know, I mean, some people even come over internationally and do a one-off or whatever, but Mm -hmm. it was a good time to be there, but we were sort of like viewed as like the three of us were sort of viewed as these, like, who are these 
these jerks from who knows where they came from are kind of looked upon as like invaders and and um, <laughs> it's like smart asses, you yeah, know. Yeah, I could see that. But sort way. of, co- yeah, it sort of culminated in in one particular Nirvana show at the Pyramid Club, in which um, which was of course packed to the gills, and it was before Nirvana was huge, you know, but they still were big in New York and it was like the CNBC show of all time. And, um, it was before Dave Grohl was in the band and all that. Yeah. And, um, David and I decided to heckle, um, Nirvana just for the fun of it. And we immediately got a rise out of Chris Novoselic and, and David and Chris Novoselic really got into a, got into a back and forth of vocal sparring insulting each other and steven like at first first steven was kind of ashamed and went got got kind of away from us (laughs) and then he realized that we were sort of like it was interesting he realized that he should ally himself with his friends so because he realized that easily this whole situation can kind of turn against us and be pretty ugly but whatever after only about four or five nirvana songs um, they lost it. Kurt lost it. They did their whole routine where they destroy their stage, like break a bunch of their gear, and they quit <clears throat> and wouldn't play anymore. And um, that was sort of really mainly due to David. I'd gotten to the point where he was being so effective, and his voice is so needly and like um, snarling that I was feeding him lines <laughs> in addition to his own material. <laughs> and then, so the show ended, and I, I remember carrying David around around the waist around the crowd while he shouted at the top, which requires a lot of strength. He's big. And, um, he, he screamed at the top of his lungs, sub pop destruction. He was just sick of just the immense sort of like popular, this, the snobbery based upon adoring sub pop bands in New York city at the time. You know what I mean? It was just like, it was like, come on, man, like they're cool and everything, but there's, there's nothing that's like all, you know, like, we're all big fans of Nirvana. We all, you know, whatever. We were kind of ashamed of ourselves. But the amazing thing was, so we're like outside and back then there was a grocery store across the street where you get a 16 ounce Budweiser, a can for a dollar. Uh-huh. We were outside drinking our dollar beers, congratulating each other. And like literally in droves, people would come by us and, and tell us how much they hated us. And like, <laughs> what a horrible thing they, Almost like people were like, they were so upset. People were like, almost like, like crying. There's so much venom coming towards us. It was amazing. That kind of like might have, might have further linked us together. And we all spent a lot of time together anyway, but it was like during that sort of period that like Silver Jews were formed. And, and you know, Silver Jews were, were really formed because we had a friend, um, actually, we were still friends with a girl named Tanya Small who worked at Pierre Platters, the record store, and she went out with the, the proprietor of Pierre Platters, and she gave us Thurston and Kim's phone number, and which I can still remember to this day, 212-219-2658. Obviously, now, for several reasons, it's defunct. But um, uh, I'm sorry. But we I should, used to I should call be that number. Sh- shouldn't be laughing. We used to play, like, the, yeah, the first, like, 15 or 20 um, Silver Jews practices, we'd make up songs and we'd think we'd gotten to a point where it was like cool, like kind of in like a dead sea sort of way, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then we, then we'd call their, their home phone. And if they answered, of course, we would just hang up. I don't think they had caller ID or anything. 
but if we got their answer machine, then we'd go, you know, we'd play the song to their answering machine, you know. And uh, that was pretty much how the band existed. Like, that's how, like, you know, that we just wanted to be on Ecstatic Peace or something. Are, are they and, uh, Are they now aware that you used to do this? Oh, yeah, Thurston. Yeah, no, I mean, I obviously became friends with Thurston a few years later, and he thought a lot of it was cool, you know. Oh, nice. I don't know what Kim thought of it, but Thurston was kind of right up his alley, like, being a we- being a bunch of weird kids and calling up his answering machine and you know playing four minutes of noise is the kind of thing that he would get into to this day. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Wow, so. I, I did not know any of. I can't believe you guys willfully <laughs> ended a Nirvana show. That's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We did quickly. That's yeah. That's and and this was real. You say heckling, so I kind of thought it might be a joke, but. This was real. No, no, it was vicious. It was vicious heckling, and it got to the point where Chris Novoselic was his his retaliatory comments towards David were sort of based on uh, incorrectly and unknowingly on David being a jock, which mm. of course David really was, and he was in fact I think he quit playing soccer when he was like six or seven years old. He's a terrible athlete. <laughs> do you, do, <laughs> to watch him run is hysterical in its own right, but. Um, yeah, no, it was weird, and um, but no, those things are. I only always told the truth. Really, I've got no reason to lie. Yeah, do you do you actually remember specific, unless it's about something important? Right. Like do you remember specific volleys between the two, between Chris and and David? Do you remember specific uh, words? I just remember him calling David a jock, and like that was his whole tack. Like, you know, all we need is like jocks that are. I guess, you know, it was sort of like, well, we've gotten so popular now that we have jocks at our show or something, but, like, David wasn't a jock. And um, I can't remember, you know, David's were, like, harsh, and they were short. I think David was, David, you know, was mostly, like, calling uh, Chris Novoselic a dork, if I recall, which was, of course, extreme hypocrisy. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was just, it was just whatever... It didn't matter what he was saying. It was just whatever he could get a, a rise out of him for, you know. Okay, so again, that was February 2015, roughly. And uh, I don't know why, what's going on at this point, but I know that I've sent Drag City Records some emails about speaking with David. I think when Early Times came out, I asked again. I just threw out the time he was kind of absent i would ask drag city if if he might be up for chatting and they they always said no he's he's not really in the mood for that and then on june 24th 2015 at 8:50 in the evening i received this message hi vish i wish i could tell you that i'm ready to do an interview but i am not and it's not a case of kind of sort of preferring not to. I'm decisively against doing them. But because I notice you care and I don't notice anyone else caring, I would like to make a promise to you that when or if the time comes, I will do that first interview with you. Cassie sends her regards. David. David emailed me directly. Now, again, I, I, d- I don't exactly understand what possessed him to do this. But he did. And, uh, you know, I wrote back something effusive. And then over the next four years, we would email each other about various things. Music we were interested in, um, stories, 
kind of weird music folklore things. And I, I'll keep some of that. I'll keep all of that between him and I. It was those are correspondences, and I, I shared the first one with you because I, I'm just telling you that I didn't know him at that point. I knew him deeply on some level from his work, but to have your hero reach out to you and email you and and make such a promise, really, I mean, I don't know what I did to deserve any of that, but anyway, so. I'm still obsessed with Silver Jews. I'm obsessed with David's poetry and work and but living my life and talking to whoever I can talk to for this show, as some of you would know. Among the people I speak with, Dan Behar, Destroyer. And again, I'm starting to hear rumors that David went up to talk to Dan, or went up to work with Dan, I should say. Um, and uh, this intrigues me. I'm like, what? What is this about? They're, what are they working on? And so Dan... And I'm just looking it up. I'm a little unprepared. Dan is um, on the show, this show, for like the third time. I want to say, yeah, Dan was a Dan has been a frequent guest. We're talking about his latest album to date, which is Ken. And so, yeah, November 29th, 2017, episode 368 of Creative Control. Dan's on the show, and I put it to him. I put it to him. I ask him about David because I've heard he might be working with David. And here's what here's what here's a very typical Dan Behar response to this. I have to ask you about something uh because I heard a rumor that you were working with uh my hero David Berman. Uh David Berman of the Silver Jews uh I someone told me that you he was seen in Vancouver and that he was hanging out with you a little bit. Is there any truth to any of this? Uh David went on an ex- extended eight-month West Coast walkabout. And a couple months of that were spent up here in Vancouver, and we did uh, hang out a little bit Okay. while he was here. You hung out as friends. You, you've become friendly with David? Yes, we hung out as friends, yeah. Okay. When did you become friends with David, if I might ask? Uh, you know, a little bit over the Internet. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> now, is it a is it a situation where he's... a little bit of he came to a show that I a solo show I played in in Tennessee last fall, and and did he express some admiration for you then? I can't remember what we talked about. You know, he showed up for the show, which is a sign that he was interested in you. And and are you a fan of his? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, his the Silver Jews record and his writing are uh, definitely a part of. The Destroyer origin story in a pretty big way, yeah. Yeah, he's. Uh, if I have an origin story that no one wants to read, I, I do. No one wants to hear it. But <laughs> if I did have one that people wanted to hear or read or see on the big screen in Tinseltown, I think uh, he would be a fundamental block in in my foundation. He is a huge influence, and I miss him. And his work uh, dearly, since he, he so for people who don't know, he basically retired Silver Jews uh, after kind of coming out, playing shows. He had never played any shows for like the first 15, 20 years, it felt like, of the band's existence. And then all of a sudden he was doing it. And uh, then he retired it completely. And uh, I, I have to say, I was intrigued by this rumor that you two people might be hanging out. I can't help but wonder if if brains were picked, if ideas were exchanged, that kind of thing. You know, at some point, 
you know, decades from now or tomorrow, David will have all those answers for you. Okay. I have to send you. You want me to email David? Is that what you're saying? You're not. You're not, <laughs> you're not encouraging me to email David, but I could. I mean, I I could email David. I, I mean, we've been known to exchange the odd message. I could send him a note and just say, "Hey, what's happening?" and see what he says. I mean, it's not in my yeah, business, really. I, I don't. I could tell me tell me what he says. You know, I. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. could probably email him as well. We might get different answers, <laughs> right? Because you met him on the internet. That's how you. <laughs> that's how you. Connect. We both know him through the internet, <laughs> it's right? True. But... So there's something there. I don't know what's going on. I emailed David, and he he proceeds to tell me that yeah, something went went down, and starts. David starts sending me song lyrics to something, something he's going to call Purple Mountains. He's pretty sure he's going to call it Purple Mountains and it's just going to be a bunch of um, 12-inch singles or something is his plan. He has all these ideas. Dave was really full of ideas. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? I, I don't understand. And he's like, he's going to send me, a, a, and he's going to send me an MP3. And he's, he's just all excited. He wants to share all this stuff with me. And again, like we've never really, we've spoken a couple of times, but he's so giving and, and forthcoming and appreciative, I think, of of my interest in him. I was saying this to my wife the other day to try to make sense of my relationship with David because I'm a fan. And then we became pen pals over email. We would email each other a bunch. And I, what I've come up with is, and I think what maybe resonates with some people who listen to this show is that I have a genuine love for the people who are on my show. And I've kind of was saying the other day to my wife, I feel like, when I engage with someone and their work, if everything's going well and I'm having a, a good day and I'm prepared, you know, I've had the time to prepare, I am so engaged on some level that I, I feel like I've, I've, I've said everything to this person just short, just shy of I love you. I've, I, I express an interest in what they've said on their records or their work and I've, I've tried to break it down on some level to try to figure out what it says about them. And I think maybe, I don't know, maybe that resonated with David. Maybe he knew I loved him. I never told him I loved him, but maybe he knew. So anyway, he's starting to share this information with me about his work. And no one, as far as I know, like there's no inkling of this, really. And, um, and you know, in this... That was episode 368. I probably checked in with him about ep- being on episode 400. You know, a milestone episode. I, I was probably interested in having him on. And again, he would defer. Um, but then um, in the fall of 2017, uh, we discovered that my mother was, my mother had cancer and um, breast cancer. And um, it was a, you know, this had never occurred in our family really so we were just sort of slack-jawed and in shock about it all and uh her status was not looking good she quickly went from stage two to stage three breast cancer and you know surgeries mammograms uh, and all those things were in the works lymph nodes removed and it was just looking bad and i i was in my whole family was in rough shape and i was uh, i was among them really bad shape and so when David checked in about something or, or I don't know how it worked out but I told him 
was going on and um he empathized he lost his mom to cancer and he uh didn't have a chance even to he told me he didn't really have a chance to even say goodbye it happened so quickly the diagnosis and and her uh passing away and so I think we related to each other on a whole other level there as as sons in pain and uh I guess and he would just check in check in all the time how you doing how's your mom doing so most of 2018 was a, a fog and a blur to me and da- but David was there so it was very kind of surreal frankly um but the that just elevated my obviously that's a very personal thing it's a personal connection that maybe I, I'm starting to as as since David's passing you're starting to see people circulate little anecdotes like that that David would express real concern and care I mean you're, you're also hearing about how funny he was and how antagonistic he could be uh, with certain people and he was very opinionated and, and all those sorts of things but but this loveliness about him that I think I knew of from his work just crystallized via email mostly and then um, 2019 rolls and my mom by the way you know goes through all the shit chemotherapy and the radiation therapy and another surgery and she's okay as i speak to you she's okay she's uh and david you know even when i told david that she was okay he would still send me messages making sure she was okay still and um so that's that's a huge part of my memory of david now this unlikely personal it's inexplicable to me despite what I said earlier about this potential rapport thing that I seem to develop with people and I don't quite understand why he what he saw in me but he he saw something in me and I I mean I, I obviously saw something in him and anyway I've already tried to explain this I don't really know I'll never know but Anyway, January 2019 rolls around, and then there's an announcement, a rumor that David, it's what he's already told me, Purple Mountains record will be coming out. That's the name of the the group. And uh, no, sorry. Yeah, that happens in January. Sorry. In November or December or something like that, there is some kind of thing that circulates that maybe this is happening. And so I write to David to be like, hey, is, is something happening? I think I think that's what happened. I don't know what happened, but in any case, in December of 2018, David says, "Yes, it is. Here's the album." Sends me the new Purple Mountains album as a 45-minute wave file. Uh, you know, it's not broken up as songs. It's just one giant file, and I, I, I've documented the listening experience I had with the Purple Mounds album already when David was just on the show uh, in uh, June, I guess it was, right? Is that when I posted it? We spoke in May, and I think I posted it in June. 
So if you want to hear more about that, or you've you probably already, if you've heard that, then you've heard me and David talk about how like I initially was like, this is amazing, I can't believe it, I'm so excited, and then the more I listened to the lyrics, the more I realized he was really in pain. And I, yeah, so, anyway, the announcement comes out, they're putting out the record, it's going to come out in um, July, I think is what gets announced. And then I'm contacted by Catherine at Drag City. Says, yeah, David wants to talk to you. He's not talking to many people, but he wants to talk to you and a couple other people. And I'm struck by this email I received from David in 2015 where he said I would be among, I'd be the first person he speaks to if he does an interview. And so that... Him honoring that in this current noise of promotion and obligation and empty promises that you sometimes encounter in music and art. He remembered, and and I mean, it's phenomenal to me. So we, we talked, we did the interview, and the caveat of the interview was it was originally only going to be a print interview, for a magazine piece uh, for Exclaim. And I sort of said, well, I'd like to present it on my podcast. And that, and um, David was resistant to that. He, he has expressed to me in the past that he's not the best off-the-cuff speaker. He doesn't really um, have a good feeling about such things. I'm not dealing with David on this. I'm dealing primarily with Drake City. So I tell Drake City, well, listen, why don't you tell David that um, he can vet the audio? I don't do this often because it can lead to lots of frustration. <laughs> uh, but I say he can vet it. He can, if he doesn't like something he said or wishes he could say it differently, we can fix it. Like I, I'm happy to do that. I've never done it before, but I'll do it. So I'll do the print piece and we'll do the audio piece, and that'll be two things. And they say okay. I'll ask him and then they ask him and he's like yep David's into it he's totally into doing that so we do the interview it's done over Skype and I can see him he can't see me I turned the camera off Um, I'm just adding that as a note (laughs) Um, and the interview feels good I'm a little concerned about him but he's, he's cogent and. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. He's fielding all the questions and it's a good chat, I think. So I run an edit of it. I do an edit of it, the audio. And I write directly to David after to say, David, I've done an, um, an edit of the audio. Do you want to hear it? And he says, is there a transcription? I said, no, I mean, the piece I'm doing for Exclaim isn't super. I don't think it's going to be long enough for me to do an entire transcription of everything. Um, I was just going to transcribe what I thought was pertinent. Um, if you want, I can send you that stuff. And he writes back, I don't need to approve it, Bish. It's fine. So, I took it as trust at the time. I have some fears or worries about it now. Anyway, the thing goes out and um, people who are fans are... um, very exuberant about it I guess for the most part I mean everyone I've gotten lots of messages about it and I feel a lot of questions about it and I checked in with David a little bit about it and we talked we mostly talked about other stuff frankly I mean I didn't really ask him what he thought of it or if he listened back to it I'm sure he didn't and um, the album comes out and everyone loves it I mean it's I love it write about it for exclaim again and uh Go to a sappy fest. I go to Sackville. I go to I go on a trip with my family uh, in the Maritimes of Canada, and uh, I'm at a festival, a music festival in Sackville, New Brunswick, called Sappy Fest. And everyone I talk to wants to talk to me about David, about how much they appreciated our chat and how much they are happy he's back. And we get back on the Tuesday night, and I tell myself I'm going to write to David and tell him this. And then Wednesday rolls around and it's it's uh, it's too late. Yeah, so I don't... I just wanted to, to talk about him with you. I don't, like... I've never done this before on the show. But I wanted to... That conversation... The conversations and emails and exchanges I've had with David are so meaningful to me that I just want to talk about it a little bit. So, again, back in 2008, David and I had a chat for my CFRU campus community radio show that I did with my wife. We called it the Mish Vish Interracial Morning Show. It's the first time we really talked on the phone. And uh, the album had been out, Look Out Mountain, Look Out Sea. But there was also this documentary coming out called Silver Jew. And he was about to take the band on the road again. And I want to share that conversation with you. I've had a lot of trouble listening to David's voice since it was announced that he was gone, that he took his own life. Just sadness. I was texting with Bob Mistanovich today, and I just said, I, 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 the feeling is I feel haunted. I feel haunted by David. Uh, and that's not a 
to blame him. That's just how I feel. That's how I, I just don't feel. I don't feel like myself. I feel well enough to do this. To try to remember him in some way and share that with you. But I feel haunted. And um, I dredged up, uh, I tried to find wave files of this conversation with David from 2008 and they look terrible. I mean, I have evolved. I've never, I've once on the show have I dipped into the archives of my past to play something and post something. And that's when um, Gord Downey was, uh, it was announced he had terminal cancer. And I, and I went and found that audio and I shared it. And I've never done this before really other than that. But I, I found, I went to my basement and I found the mini disc recording of the phone tap interview that I did with David. So I'm going to play it for you now. Um, I don't normally, uh, I just don't dip into the archives. I think for my own sake, I, I you know, it's like um, showing someone a, a video of how you learn to walk. Uh, I know I've gotten better at this kind of thing, the interviewing and the talking to people over the years. So you kind of want to keep that up. A lot of what we do, I've talked about this with artists, a lot of what we do in this realm, public realm, is you're learning in public. And I don't, people are like, hey, can you can you find that interview you did with so-and-so from 2007? I'm like, I don't really want to. I'll talk to that person again, but I don't really want to go back because I, I know I would do it better now. But but I listened back to this and I, I've tried to fix it a little bit as much as I can so it sounds good. And um, it's fine. It's good. It's a good conversation. I, I think I'm there. I, I'm, I'm ready to talk to David. And he inspired me to be okay at what I was doing. And he's great. I mean, stuff he has to say is insightful and thoughtful and as funny as ever. So this was, um, I made a note of this. When is this conversation from? Did I make a note of this? This, oh yeah, I did find this. Hang on a second. I think this was recorded. Um, this conversation with David was recorded in 2008, but I want to get the exact date for you. I feel like it was June, Friday, June 27th at 3 p.m. Please call David at this number. This is 2008. So that's when this conversation occurred. I will play it for you now. To uh, it's the f- uh, in editing this, it's the first time I've heard David's voice since he passed away, and uh, I hope it helps you. I hope it gives you some more insight into him if you if you need it. And I hope uh, I hope we're talking about him forever. And listening to his music forever, and listening to interviews, and reading his interviews, I, I there is. I don't want to spend any time trying to convince you if you don't already think of his greatness as a thing. I don't want to spend much time insisting upon it, pushing you on him. I think he's a rare artist, and that the genius of him is apparent by absorbing the work, listening to it, reading what he has to say, listening to what he had to say. It, it, that's all it is. That's all there is to it. I knew it the second I every time, every time I started a record by David. I was I was transported from the start. 
that's a connection I had with him. And uh, over the years, it, it developed into something deeper on some level. And I will never get over this, ever. And uh, I love him. I always will, forever. And uh, I think he knew that. And uh, that's it. So take care of the ones you love. Reach out to people who are struggling and tell them that you love them. I wish I had written to David to tell him that he was loved one more time. But I I, I didn't. And uh, I hope I hope you reach out. If you need help, if you know someone who needs help, I hope you will help them. And uh, yeah, that's it. Sorry, it's a ramble. I, this is why I don't do monologue shows. <laughs> I didn't write anything down. I just went for it. And um, I hope this was interesting or something. And uh, for whatever this was worth, here's me and David Berman in conversation from Friday, June 27th, 2008. Thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for listening to Silver Jews and David Berman. Enjoy this. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Mish Vish Interracial Morning Show on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph. My name is Vish, and it's time once again for our weekly artist profile. This week's guest is a genuine hero of mine who hails from Nashville, Tennessee, and leads Silver Jews, one of the world's most intriguing and influential bands. Releasing records since the early 90s and a poetry book entitled Actual Air in 1999, he is regarded by many as underground music's greatest poet, and his refusal to ever tour behind his charmingly dark songs inadvertently made him a mythical enigma. Things changed in 2005 when he emerged from a dark period, released the highly acclaimed album Tanglewood Numbers, and decided to travel the world and encounter uh, many, many Silver Jews fans for the first time, uh, leaving Nashville for locales as exotic as Tel Aviv, and Vancouver in 2006. Last month, Drag City Records brought us a, another perfect Silver Jews record in Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea, and the label is also scheduled to release a film called Silver Jew, which documents the band's 2006 tour of Israel. Today, I'm so unbelievably thrilled to welcome this gentleman to our program to tell us more about his work. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in saying good morning to David Berman. Uh, good morning, David. Hey, Vish. How are you? I'm doing real well. Are you still awake? That was a long intro. I, I just felt like I needed that to... That just summed it all up for me. <laughs> it was good. I needed a reminder of all that. <laughs> well, I must say I'm very, very thrilled to have you on the show. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, David, I'd like to begin by discussing Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea. Um, now, I'm hesitant to say that this is the cheeriest Silver Jews album, but particularly after the opening number, uh, What Is Not But Could Be If, the record's story-based songs are... I think uniquely introspective and, and somehow less dark. There's less use of I as a pronoun and perhaps even a lot more we's, which to me oh. suggests more of a collective than individual perspective. Now, I, I've loaded up this question pretty good, but uh, <laughs> I'm wondering if you can yourself uh, distinguish Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea from other silver records. Yeah, um, well, I think that the album is a lot closer to... Um, the songs on it are are a lot closer to just sort of classical songwriting and they're not as idiosyncratic as far as I think uh, the other albums they are very particular to me. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I've always noticed is people don't really cover Silver Jew songs and <laughs> I, I always thought well <clears throat> you know I think there's a reason for that and um, th th they don't make good covers they're not really sort of general or universal in the sense that someone else can kind of step in and 
and take over the song. Hmm. But this time I felt differently about it, and I on purpose was thinking about songs, how they might be covered. So I purposely, I guess, wrote them sort of on a more public level, and they're, they're a lot... Uh, they're, the songs are a lot less about me, I'd have to say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. directly, and are more uh, artistic creations in the conventional sense. Do you, do you think that actually draws a little bit of a distinction between a prose ap- approach versus a poetic one? I, and I'm not saying that the line is that clear, no. but these do these do seem to be kind of tales, where some of your other songs are more, and I assume they are, obviously you've taken some artistic license with those as well, but... They seem to be less um, story-oriented, if that's one yeah. way of putting it. Well, I think the other ones, the meaning is, is definitely more associative, and there's not necessarily a theme for every song that you could sum up in a sentence. Yeah. But the, the tact on this album is different. I think there is a theme for every song. Um, there is a... Mm, I, I say in a way I'm pushing these songs uh, forward, whereas before I would say I was maybe pulling them sure. out. And you know I've noticed that um, that people's definition of poetry or what is what is poetic is very interesting. It's this album is more closer to common speech. There aren't um, mm-hmm. there there isn't as many sort of strange compound sentences or phrases and I can't explain that any <laughs> anything else except that it's an artistic development. Maybe this is an arc of my life mm-hmm. has been towards communication and away from uh, mystification. Um, sure, inclusive. Like what you're saying in the introduction about the uh, not by not playing live a certain mystique would develop mm-hmm. around I mean, now I kind of see that as unearned, uh, <laughs> unearned, um, you know, an unearned positive positivity, something that someone might try to culture. And so I think in a way I'm kind of moving against that and reaching for clarity huh. um, and uh, sort of forgoing the uh, pleasures of, of being uh, unknown. And sure. <laughs> So. No, that that's that's a very interesting way of putting it. I hadn't thought of all those things. That's and, and you know you've included a, a chord sheet uh, in in the record as well for people to play along. Yeah, yeah. I always thought that was strange that no one did that. Um, and you can really think about it pretty. Hard. I mean, I go through a lot of records. I've seen a lot of records in my time, and yeah, you know, you never really see that. You never see and and so to me that's that. What does that mean? There's if the if the chords are there, it's an invitation to play the songs. If they're not there, and they're never there, it seems to me there's some suggestion that there are listeners and there are players. Right. And that wall is there, and it seems to me that people like that wall. Yeah. Um, especially, I think, the bands on the other side of it. They want creation or the creation of music to seem like a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. And it is a difficult thing. Um, one of the risks, I guess, about like putting the chords in there, you think, well, you know, it do- it looks easier than it is. If you look at country music and you look at the chord structure and how they're really all simple, three and f- two and three chord songs, you might think, well, then 
they must be simple to write, but they're not. Mm-hmm. So I think one another thing is I have to say to be fair is, is that my music is so simple that you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, you know, I think that the fact that I only really use these 16 really simple chords to write all the songs is, for me, it was like this kind of realization, well, that's the case about my music. Um, how can that be changed to be an advantage? Because I normally look at everything negatively, you know, about myself, perhaps, let's say. And so I would think negatively, well, my music's so simple, you know, uh, I I use the same chords and um, and they're always in the same key. And um, this was a way I figured, well, I could turn it to my advantage because people with more complex music can't really share it right. um, with, a, with a beginner, for instance. But these songs, anybody, you know, anybody with, who took a little bit of time, who'd never played guitar before, could play these songs. So I was really excited that somebody might learn guitar based on the, the album. Huh. And it stems from this, uh, this kind of thoughtful approach to inclusiveness that you've not quite... Well, had. yeah, and also I feel like it's sort of like, I don't know, I guess I feel, I'm sort of like a whistleblower or something. I'm like, <laughs> this isn't that hard, you know, come on, look, this, I'm blowing the whistle on the, on the, you know, because I really do feel like people pay a lot of lip service to, you know, indie music privileges this sort of, you know, fan band relationship. Yeah. But still, this is kept, this, this, there aren't, you know, there aren't people teaching classes on how to write songs, even though it's very easy. Right. There's really no, you know, for there's a way to go after to learn how to write songs if you're an aggressive person or really want to or feel a talent, and you go and you, you know, you go, you might go out and get a book or you might seek lessons or a lot, a lot of practice. But there's also another way, which is you could play some silver juice songs. They're very simple. <laughs> that's that's a good point. It's true. Yeah. Well, you've worked with uh, you worked with a lot of session players, and Silver Juice has had a loose membership really until now. Uh, how is playing with your wife Cassie and having a regular gang of of musicians with you affected you as a songwriter? I don't know if it's affected me as a songwriter because I'm not always positive who's going to be the band oh. when I'm writing the songs. But this time I was, so it did actually affect this time because I don't know if it affected the writing, but the experience of going out and playing live with these guys, the experience of playing live affected the songwriting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think when I try to write a song, I make sure that it's something that could just be carried based on some words and some chords. So I really, to me, anybody could play the song with me. Um, right. And the fact that Brian and Tony and Peyton and William and Cassie where the band um, in 2006 when we toured, we know they all work together, they all know each other, uh, they all live in town, mm-hmm. and practicing it was, you know, more extensive maybe than than before. But usually we, there's not a lot of forethought, you know, and especially uh, for the basic tracks. And these guys are, you know, close friends from around town. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess what I'm saying is is that there's not a big difference between um, have, you know, having players in town. I guess if I was more the type to keep a band working, like 
you know, keep the band on, but I turn the band off when the records are, are done. Yeah. Now I'm kind of keeping the band on a little bit because we played the shows mm-hmm. uh, last month, and and in the in the fall we're going to do it again. But I think after that, I won't assume that that's the band anymore. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Uh, one of the things that has struck me about the last few Silver Jews records in particular is the manner in which you've really, to me, resuscitated country music in a lot of ways. When I when I listen to, for example, Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea, I feel like I'm hearing country in its most genuine form. With like, I, I hear echoes of Nashville running through your music and lyrics as well. Would you say that the city's history and sounds have affected your your work in any way? And 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 how, I mean, how do you fit in there? You've been living there for a little while now. Yeah. Well, I don't fit in anywhere in the music scene per se, mm-hmm. but the history. And as an observer of the music scene, uh, I'm in, I'm definitely, uh, you know, I actually watch things like the CMA Awards, and I'm, I keep, keep myself pretty familiar with what's going on on Music Row. But of course, what I, what I'm really interested in in country music is the classic songwriting, mm-hmm. and, uh, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, um, I think that, uh, you know, definitely, I'm the type of person who's, I'm pretty solitary, so it's me and my environment, and my environment in Nashville, you know, you can't really forget where you are, there's, there's, um, reminders all around me, I mean, every day, if, when I drive to the store, I have to drive by this road street called Elvira, you know, which was inspired a really corny country song, Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, Pee Wee King's mother-in-law used to live in the house across the street, so I always think about that when I'm there. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm aware of, like, where Harlan Howard used to live, which is sort of nearby, and I'm always sort of, I guess I'm as, I'm in the presence of those people in my mind uh, as much as my contemporaries. Right. Um, and uh, I do think, like, that I looked away from country music for a while, in a way because... I found the world of alternative country to be a real turnoff, and so I, I think that stupidly, maybe, uh, I shied away from country forms for a while because of that, and maybe I feel it's safe again. But um, I don't know. I I do know that you know things that country music used to do. The storytelling capacity of country music has really narrowed. Um, yeah. And uh, it's become a, a, a certain kind of, of celebration of small town values over and over and over and over again, you know. And, mm-hmm. and that's what you really hear. And it's crazy, you know. It just bothers it bothers me. But uh, <laughs> that's what people write. That's what people put out. That's what people want to hear right now. Where people seem to feel really threatened. They they're, feel like their values are threatened. And you know, I feel like. People's values are threatened by other things, like commerce. And so, you know, I don't know too many country songs that want to say anything negative about construction downtown. You know, that's yeah. a positive thing in the, the conservative country world. And, um, you know, it is, it is true that, you know, back when the war started, there was some terrible, terrible very coercive, threatening, intimidating music coming out of Nashville that mm-hmm. really was a sort of embarrassing to me. 
And, um, you know, I would write letters to the paper about it quite often. And I think I've been glad to see that settle down a little bit. But um, Did they print the letters? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I you know, I, I came down so hard on Charlie Daniels a couple of times, I was actually frightened because his fans are so... He's really become a a real red, white, and blue, jingoistic, threatening type of guy mm -hmm. who still tries to trade on his long-haired country boy reputation or whatever at some point when hippies were opposed to rednecks. But now that he's got the unified redneck patriotic movement, sort of, he's become like the head. They actually have a Charlie Daniels gift shop downtown, which is just really a way to sell American flags. <laughs> you know, and they used to have the Bobby Bear stuffed bear shop when I, you know, yeah. first moved to Nashville. That was what was downtown. Uh, so that pisses me off. No, I understand. I just, it does seem like you have an affinity for the city, but are equally conflicted about it. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And that's, that tension is interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I definitely don't want to live anywhere else. And I definitely, I think when I, live or have lived in places where a lot of artists have lived, I don't have that tension that I think I guess I started having when I was a kid in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And living in, I've, you know, I've always done my best writing and living in sort of Republican provinces. Huh. And um, so... Yeah, no, I, I can see how that would work. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, well, right now I thought we could actually listen to a song from Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea, and, and I was hoping uh, you might pick one for us to hear there, David. Well, why don't you play Suffering Jukebox? That's a great it's song. About, it's about Nashville, I think. It always reminds me of the spring water. Yeah, well, uh, that's a... <laughs> that's a... Uh, a jukebox that... Uh... <laughs> I don't know why, I just... It's like one of the few places I've been in Nashville is like the Spring Water and Music Row and all that stuff but I don't know every time I hear Suffering Jukebox I just picture in my mind that's a good, that's a, a good place to picture I mean definitely in the daytime at the Spring Water you are looking at you know some real uh, despair the daytime drinkers yeah uh, the Vietnam vets and uh, um, I'm usually thinking probably about the, the rounds that you might make as a day drinker, which spring water you would definitely hit. But, right. <laughs> um, but for those who don't know, the spring water is like a, a bar in, in Nashville, just so uh, yeah, if that wasn't clear. Bar. Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, that's a, it's a great song, too, so let's, let's go with that. We'll be back with more with David Berman, but first here's Suffering Jukebox from Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea on the Mishvi Generational Morning Show on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph.
vault of number one While these seconds turn these minutes into hours of the day While these doubles drive the dollars and the light of day away Listening to the Mishvish Interracial Morning Show on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph. That was Suffering Jukebox from Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea by the Silver Jews. Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea was released on Drag City Records on June 17th. For more information about this and other amazing records, please visit dragcity.com. If you're just joining us, our special guest today is, in fact, David Berman. Thanks again for being on today's show, David. Thank you, V. It's a a great, great thrill to have you on our show. I must say, we've had many uh, people I admire on the show. I never thought I I would be speaking to you on our show, and I really appreciate your time. Well, it's it's good, and this is definitely the first uh, 
time I've spoken to Canada in a, in a definitely a long time. Oh, it's well, seven years. It's, so it's I'm happy to be. You know, I've never even been to Canada except for Vancouver. Right. And uh, I'm going to be up there this fall. I really, you know, I really do look forward to it. Oh, awesome! I hope you have a good time, and and we'll be telling people more about the the specific dates in just a bit. But now we have work to do. I have more questions for you. All right. <laughs> uh, now, so much has already been made about your decision to, to finally tour with Silver Jews in 2006 um, after basically refusing to do so, I suppose, for more than a decade. I'm not sure who you were refusing to do so. You know, who, who you know what I mean? It, it was yeah, your decision. Had, you know, you have to say no. Yeah. <laughs> you had to say no to somebody anyway. Yeah. Um, now, I got to see a show from that first tour in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, mm -hmm. and not only did you seem to be loving the experience, you seemed genuinely grateful to the people who came to see you. And then after that, you seem to be playing everywhere in the world all, all the time. And, and as we were saying, another long Silver Jews tour is scheduled to begin uh, this August. What surprised you the most about being on the road, and, and why does touring now appeal to you so much? Well, first of all, I guess I'd say I'm not so sure I love it. Okay. I, I do, I mean, I really do like being out, out on the stage. Did that sensation surprise you, how much you loved it? I did really like it, and it, it did surprise me, and uh, it surprised me that I feel very comfortable doing it. I I guess what is what I feel uncomfortable about is maybe the climate in which I've decided to finally tour is so merged with the internet economy, and you know, there's a lot of disturbing. I think there's a lot of money um, out there that sort of no one's talking about like in the festival system oh There's, you know the bands are making a lot of lot of money and it's strange to me it's it's a strange it's a different it's a different world than i remember when i was someone who used to go to a lot of shows you in feel the like 90s. you feel um, like perhaps the is it the, the, it's obviously less of a struggle for some bands but i'm just trying to think of festivals you've played i know you've played all tomorrow's parties and the pitchfork festival uh are there other yeah, things? And I, li I like the festivals, and, you know, they're easy. It's an easy job. And maybe I feel guilty that maybe I just am trained to think that work should not be easy. Sure, sure. So I, maybe there's a certain amount of guilt to it. I don't know, but, you know, we did those shows in 2006. We did 45, and then um, uh, we did 15 last month and then we're going to do 30 in the fall. I'm not so sure we'll do any more after that. I mean, it's ridiculous to, to, to predict, but I, huh. I, I, I don't know that I want to become the type of person that's available for live appearances, you know, uh, that, that I'm not so sure I want to make being a musician or make it, make being a performance artist part of my life and performing art is part of my life and I guess what alarmed me is that I always felt well that could never be the case because I found playing unappealing and now it's I find that it's appealing and it's lucrative and so <laughs> there's two reasons why I'm I might want to do that but the part of me that's an artist that thinks about what's the best for my art what I do um, doesn't want that. This is um, one of this is one of your points earlier in your career when people asked you about touring. You would say, "Well, no, I'm a writer, and yeah. I need to be at home." Yeah, yeah. Doing and I that. Think, 
I'm, I'm, yeah, I think that I've seen too many times, too, you know, too many examples of songwriters who, who couldn't write songs after a while. And, um, and I don't know any other common, commonality except between songwriters that writers don't have, except that songwriters travel around and play live and they play their work over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think maybe a lot of the time when uh, writing could be written, songs could be written, when writing could be developing, people are touring. They're playing their songs over and over again. Instead of writing a new song, they're, they're playing the same song over and over again. Maybe they waste their time. Maybe the time passes by and when they, you know, sort of try to grow as an artist, they discover that they've cashed it all out. Hmm. And so I guess on a timeline for an artist, I'm young, I'm 41. Mm-hmm. But on a timeline for a songwriter, I'm old. <laughs> and I think that I don't want this, to, I, I want there to be a lot of new writing. I want there to be, I want to get better. I want, I don't want it to be the end. I can't, you know, people can't give me enough examples of, of songwriters who've been able to write late into life. Right. I appreciate what you're saying. It's interesting to me that, I mean, why even agree to do this fall leg of the tour if you're already feeling like maybe that'll be it? Yeah. Um, well, I guess because I do feel like I have to make an effort. You know, this, the last, the last album came out and I toured. And how did the success of that album vary compared to others? Um, it was, it was, it sold a little bit more than the others, but not a lot more. Um, hmm. the touring, in other words, wasn't, like people would say over the years, oh, you would be selling a lot more records if you'd been touring after every album and building an audience and stuff. Right. So I guess I'd have to do that maybe twice to, pr- to see if that, if there was any truth to that. Right. I mean, I, I do, you know, want more people to buy the records or to hear the records. And they all basically sell about the same, which to me is is probably a good thing. You know, I might say, well, like, look at a band that started out around the same time as me, Sebado. Sure. They sold a lot of records, but then they're sort of irrelevant now. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe, you know, staying, not being that popular, not ever being the flavor of the month, um, is probably pretty good. Staying under the radar keeps keeps it going and I'd rather stay at the same level than to have an up and down career yeah I mean so much of that stuff is kind of out of a band's control in some ways I mean it's part of the sort of hype system right well I mean it is within the band's control depending on you know how much they want to participate in it sure that's true I guess that's what I'm saying about the festival system is that I think that you know there's a lot here the feeling is sort of like People feel like the culture's at a tipping point, and a lot of commerce is going on, and the criticism and the critique of the commerce that's going on with the music industry has just basically stopped. Mm-hmm. There's no dissent, there's no critique at all anymore. Maybe in Canada there is, well, but I mean, in the United States, it's <laughs> over. You know, you can't find, uh, you know, you can't find, people will, will, will say something, you'll read an article about, Sonic Youth, and it'll say something like, they've just, uh, you know, they put together this record with Starbucks, yeah. and on the bulletin boards, people went crazy with anger, and, and, 
and and then the writer's always saying, you know, aren't those people foolish? Because, you know, Sonic is just trying to get their music out to people. But the thing is, the lie, the lie is, is that there aren't people out there complaining about it. The, 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 if you go out and you try to find the blogs where people are commenting on what does it mean that Sonic Youth is partnering with Starbucks, you won't find them. Huh. You know, and so to me, you know, part of the the strange thing is is that there's this insistence that there's old-fashioned people with old-fashioned ethics who don't like people selling half their record to a car company. Right. But where are those people? <laughs> They're really actually a paper tiger just used to promote the idea that it's okay to sell half your albums to a car company. Hmm. That's really what drives me crazy. I would be, a, you know, I would be a lot more comfortable with what I'm doing if there were critiques of what the system, what's happening in the system. Right. But I think what people are seeing is there's no critique going on, so let's cash in. Right. Because, and that makes you wonder, was it all about you know, was it all about peer pressure? And it, I think it was. I mean, when when Sonic Youth put on the back of their album, fuck the PMRC, yeah. did they really mean it? Well, no, because, I mean, up to that point, they'd never said anything about the PMRC. Mm-hmm. And since then, you know, just the, uh, just the uh, last month, uh, Be Your Own Pet on Thurston Moore's label had uh, the... the the main label, Universal, yeah, they rejected the, the makes ecstatic piece, a what they used to call a fake indie. Yeah, they don't say anymore because <laughs> you would have to call ecstatic piece fake, and you're not allowed to do that. Right. Um, <laughs> and you know what happened? Fear Own Pet had songs taken off their record because they were too violent, and no one at in the Fear Own Pet or at ecstatic piece made a deal out of it. Yeah. They just went along with it. So what did it mean? What did any of that mean? And that's what bothers me, I think. No, I, 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 I can understand, and I can understand why you might want to withdraw from it uh, as much as possible. And I also think we could probably have a, uh, like a 20-minute discussion just on this, but perhaps we should move on. Yes, let's move on. <laughs> but I appreciate your thoughts very much. Um, David, I want to ask you about this film, uh, Silver Jew, which um, documents your band's tour of Israel. Uh, now, even though it's framed a bit like a, a family vacation, it really is a powerfully personal and revealing film. Uh, how did the idea for it uh, come about? Well, it was like a lot of things. It just sort of happened. Uh, we were going to Israel, and a friend of ours from Nashville decided that it was something he wanted to document. Mm-hmm. So he came over with a camera and followed us around. I don't know that I thought there would be that anything would come out of it and in fact when we got back and he told me that he wanted to make something out of it i i was really skeptical about it mm-hmm. and to the point where i still have never seen it yeah I, i'd heard that i was going to ask if that was true what, what why won't you see it um i guess i didn't want to see it because you know i i i'm not i don't well, this is a perfect example. I'm not very good at speaking off the cuff. And when you're just traveling around and meeting a lot of different people and speaking off the cuff, I wasn't willing to see... I, I'm sure I say things that I don't agree with, or I'm sure I exaggerate or contradict myself, um, all these sort of things that I wouldn't allow in a piece of art that I controlled. Because it's and, in the moment and captured on film. Right, and, just... I'm not, and I'm not editing it. Right. And I knew that, well, number one is, I can't edit it, because 
what would happen would be I wouldn't find anything I liked. I would want to take everything out. So I had a choice between, you know, trying to edit it or just not looking at it. Um, If I wanted it, and so I thought, well, I could just have some people I trusted watch it and approve it for me. Um, It's quite a lovely film, I think, Um, if you don't mind me saying. I know you haven't seen it, but it's a very interesting film from almost every angle, from from that of a music fan and, and from someone just sort of interested in, in you and I think the kind of spiritual element of your life, I suppose. Well, I think that's why I let it go because, you know, what I what I was made to believe was that it would it was a good thing to release because people don't see examples um of let's of intelligent people, a critical minds dealing with spiritual things. Yeah. Um, and so I felt like if that was part of it and that was captured there, then it, was, it wasn't my right to pull that away because it's just, it's a rare thing. Right. And, and then when, you know, I was, you know, aware that there was a scene with me when I get tearful at the Western Wall. Yes. And that was another thing that I thought was a, a reason to release it because you don't ever see people, people who you know from, from a fan's point of view, uh, cry. And so I thought, then that's something that needs to be out there. Because I always want to do whatever's counterintuitive. Right. If there's like a way to do something that no one's doing, like putting the chord sheets in the CD, <laughs> yeah. or you know, releasing a film with you crying, then I want to be a part of that. <laughs> I want to be a part of anything singular. Yeah. So I let it go, and you know, it's it's strange because I don't even want to have a video made unless I made it up. You know, I don't anything that comes out from the Silver Jews. I want it to be that that I made it. So so it is it is different because I didn't make this and. Um, and uh, Jack City's going to put it out. It's kind of like going playing live. I'm just sort of, okay, well, let's. I'm go. I, I'm saying yes to things yeah. in general in my life, and you know, I did have to say no for years, and I said no to a lot of things, and I tend to just sort of as a matter of course, in the last couple of years, try to throw myself curveballs almost whenever I'm insistent about not doing anything, I make myself do it almost as right. an exercise. Right. Or I often like try to do, you know, to surprise Cassie, you know, it's like important for me that every once in a while I do something that she knows I can't stand or she thinks I, or she, she knows I say I can't stand, <laughs> that, I, that I don't have, I don't want to be I don't want to be predictable in any way, but I am somewhat. So I, I try to throw that off. You right. know, I have a lot of opinions, and you know, my opinions are just that opinions of a human being, and they don't always correlate with reality. And I realize that, and so <laughs> I sometimes have to, you know, shove them off. Right. At one point in the film, you say, and I know you haven't seen it, so I'm going to sort of, <laughs> this is kind of a spoiler for you if you ever do watch the film. Uh, at one point in the film, you say you wouldn't have been able to experience Israel as profoundly if you weren't there on tour. Uh, you make a, to, just to clarify that point, 
you make a reference to uh, experiencing Israel as a tourist versus as a musician. Yeah. And, and that seems to me to speak to the power of music as much as it does uh, spirituality. Um, how has your renewed faith in Judaism affected your your writing? I know I've been asking about various things and their effect on your writing, but I feel like there's all these ex sort of extenuating things now that yeah. you've added to your life. Um, this is one of them. Uh, how, how has all of this affected you? Yeah. Um, I think that, um, well, I think you can probably see it in the album when you said that it's more cheerful. Yeah. Um, and it's more hopeful. I don't think that um, I'm as comfortable with nihilistic conclusions. Um, I am definitely more interested in, you know, even just reading the Torah regularly has interested me in, well, we were talking before about the lyrics being more or less poetic, and there's a certain kind of poetry to the Bible that I never really understood before until I started reading it in the, in the Jewish Bible. Mm -hmm. and, and that has to do with meaning having to do with syntax and order and sentence structure. There's like lines like someone used this as an example in a review of an of unpoetic line. Mm -hmm. um, the, the days turn the weeks into months of the year. And it's just a, a lyric in a song. Yeah, and the seconds, the seconds turn the hours into days. Yeah, it's something like that. Seconds yeah. turn the minutes into hours right. of the day. And both of those lines, a person said, now anyone could have written those. <laughs> and, you know, the irony is is that they sound like something anyone could have written. They roll right off. Yeah. But if you Google them, no one's ever done that. You know, you can Google books, you can Google, but that, that, those, that order, that sentence order, where seconds, minutes, hours, and days, and then in the other one, days, weeks, months, and years, yeah. are put in a single sentence with, you know, two beats in between each one of those nouns, mm -hmm. and that is a very complex sentence. <laughs> that is a very hard thing to do, yeah. you know. I guess what I'm saying is is that what we are used to thinking of as poetry is really purple. Right. You know, what normal people call poetic is something that's one kind of poetry, but it's a very... It's it's the poetry we associate with floridness and ornateness. You feel like everyday language is being taken for granted. Um, I think everyday language, when it has structure to it, there's a beauty to it that you know that it's. I, I I don't know if it's taken for granted. I just think that it's people don't look for meaning. In what they in what they think they see the plain sense in. Yeah, that's yes. Yeah. Um, and so, in that way, I would say it could be taken for granted. I do think that it's difficult for me to to see that to see that in the in that in America today that it's not considered poetic to use clear language that you know that people aren't getting the message. Of what's happened to poetry since William Wordsworth, mm -hmm. you know, and Walt Whitman, um, they're not getting the message that there's poetry to simplicity, and there's that po poetics. Ought, there should be, it should be spare and simple, and that overwriting is not poetry. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think that's what people in lyrics they tend to associate as as poet poetic. Right. Well, well. Finally, David, I, I appreciate all your time. I, I know the upcoming tour is looming large in your vision, but are you working on anything else, either Silver Jews related or otherwise? We've been talking about poetry. You've released one book thus far, and it's it's such a stunning book. Are there other projects that you want to tell us about? Well, um, I'm just putting out putting out I'm putting together this summer a book of drawings, maybe you could call them. They're sort of like uh, you know what I do. They're sort of like primitive psychedelic New Yorker cartoons, I guess. <laughs> and so okay. I'm putting together uh, probably I guess the first Drag City coffee table book. Oh, that sounds very exciting. Yeah, that's what I think it'll be. And that's, so you're putting it together this summer, but it's coming out whenever. It would take, probably take, yeah, into, into the fall, I'm sure. Okay. And, um, you know, I'm just practicing for the tour coming up and um, trying to improve my in-between song banter and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> uh, I think your banter is fine, if you don't mind me saying, as I recall. I only saw you guys the one time, but... Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> There's some good banter on the film, too, if you ever get around to putting it in. It's, uh, you, you'd, you'd, be, you'd surprise yourself, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you again so much for joining us again today, David. It really means the world to me. Thank you very much, Lise. You're welcome. I want to tell people that for more information about, about you, they can visit uh, silverjews.net and uh, that the new record, Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea, is available now. And for more information about that and the upcoming Silver Jew DVD release, please visit dragcity.com. David, is there a date yet on the DVD? Um, I don't think so, but maybe September. Yeah, I, I'd heard September. Yeah. Speaking of September, also note that the band is in Toronto on September 2nd and, Mon and, uh, and, and they're in Montreal on September 3rd. We were talking about their Canadian stuffs, and uh, there you go. Before we go, David, I thought I'd ask you to pick another song from the new record for us to hear. And, All uh, right. Uh, why don't you play um, uh, "Strange Victory, Strange Defeat"? An excellent song about squirrels, it seems. Squirrels, squirrels breaking out. <laughs> okay, uh, let's go with that. I appreciate that. Here's "Strange Victory, Strange Defeat" by Silver Jews on the Mish Vish Interracial Morning Show on CFRU ninety three point three FM in Guelph. Connecticut just in time for fall how much fun is a lot more fun not much fun at all what with all the handsome grandsons in these rock band magazines and what have they done with the fat ones the balls and the goatee strange victory Strange victory, strange victory, strange defeat. Nightmare world of craven meaty 
In any well, case, I do appreciate this very much, and um, I'll check in with Catherine about when it should come out and all that stuff. All right, yeah. If you have any questions, just email me. I will. I will. Thank you. Uh, you're okay. well. Are you doing okay? I know. Yeah. We, I know. We just established you're doing pretty good, but off the record, you're doing well. I'm doing well. Okay. Good. Uh, so Canada is come. Okay, you'll be up here sometime in the fall. It sounds like. Yes, I will be definitely. Okay, I'll send you a note or something just so we can maybe connect. Okay. <laughs> All right, David. I will talk That's- to you very soon. Thanks again. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.